Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, we come before you this morning and we desire that you would be among your people to feed and nourish us through the word read and preached and through the word received around the table, the very flesh and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so come be with us and nourish us this morning. Give us everything we need for life and salvation. Amen. You may be seated. In our lesson this morning from Romans chapter 12, St. Paul offers us a difficult counsel, a difficult word. Do not be conformed to this world. That is, don't be conformed to this world's way of life. It's patterns of thinking and speaking and acting. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. identified the difficulty of Paul's counsel here, recognizing that it was a hard word to hear when he said, quote, In a generation when crowd pressures have unconsciously conditioned our minds and feet to move to the rhythmic drumbeat of the status quo, many voices and forces urge us to choose the path of least resistance and bid us never to fight for an unpopular cause, and never to be found in a pathetic minority of two or three. And though we find ourselves in a different generation than the one Dr. King addressed, his diagnosis still rings true. In fact, it rings louder today. In a society increasingly dominated by groupthink and cancel culture, the pressure for us as Christians to conform to this world's way of thinking and acting is strong. And fear of standing out as different can be paralyzing. I know I'm not the only one who feels that. I imagine you do as well. So Paul's command this morning not to be conformed to this world is indeed a hard word to hear and an even harder word to obey. Yet Paul does not give us this negative command only. He also gives us the positive commands to present our bodies as a living sacrifice and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Body and mind together, all submitted, the whole person to God. And together with the negative and positive commands, Paul calls Christians to cultivate a distinct Christian culture of worship, a culture of worship that embodies the gospel and serves both as a contrast and a witness to the surrounding culture. Both as a contrast and as a witness to the surrounding culture. What is a distinctively Christian culture, you might ask? I'm glad you did. Well, I'll give you the answer. Well, simply put, it is a complete, a total way of life, body and mind, act and thought, submitted to King Jesus from conception to birth, or from conception to death. It is a complete, total way of life, body and mind, act and thought, submitted to King Jesus from conception to death. And how is such a distinct culture cultivated? And embodied today, well, it's the same as it was in Paul's day. He begins by saying that Christian culture is deeply rooted in the mercies of God. In the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, he says in verse 1, by the mercies of God. So on the basis of God's mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. On the basis of God's mercy, do not be conformed to the world. On the basis of God's mercy, renew your minds. 
according to my will. Paul is saying that everything, everything that he has just taught concerning the gospel, the good news, the mercies of God, in Romans chapter 1 through 11, this is the turning point of his letter, everything that he's talked about previously in those 11 chapters, all of this is the context within which a new and total way of life is generated and cultivated. The mercies of God form the seedbed within which the new way of life of God's kingdom germinates within us. That's the grace of God at work through His Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel that we hear in Romans 10. Blessed are the feet of those who preach the good news. It germinates within us when we receive it by faith and repentance, the new life of Christ. But not only that, it's also the context, the seedbed, wherein we grow deep roots in Christ. Even Paul's use of familial language, like brother here, is significant and points to the new way of life that God calls us to live out in response to his mercy. By calling them brothers, by calling us brothers and sisters, Paul is reiterating a revolutionary truth of the gospel, that Christians are recipients of divine rebirth and adoption that we are recipients of divine rebirth and adoption. Union with Christ, as Paul has already taught in Romans chapter 8, makes us sons and daughters of the Father, younger siblings of Jesus Christ, our elder brother, and therefore spiritual siblings of one another. We are bound together by something that is thicker than blood. Through the waters of baptism, we are united to Christ and to one another. We are a part of a new family. When you were anointed... And baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you're anointed, and God's name set upon you. Your adoption papers were signed. You are now a child of the Father and a sibling with Christ. You're part of the family, the household of God. And because of his mercy and grace, God makes us members of his family. And, and as members of God's family through adoption, we are to adopt and embody this family's way of life. That's what you do when you're adopted into a new family. You become a part of that family. Their ways become your ways. And the way of life in God's family is clearly revealed by the cross of Jesus, on which he willingly offered himself as a sacrifice to atone for our sins and to make peace between us and the Father, as we hear so poignantly in Romans chapter 5. This is why in response to the mercies of God revealed in the cross of Christ, Paul calls us, in essence, to pick up our own cross as a way of life. We heard that read in our gospel passage from Jesus' own mouth. Because this is what he means when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, so on the basis of God's grace and mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. For Paul, the Christian way of life is defined from beginning to end, from conception to death, as worship. That's what it is to live, to worship. Our life is marked by this definitive characteristic that we are worshipers, that we are worshipers. And the worship he calls us to does not only occur in specific places and at specific times, like what we're doing right now in corporate worship. Rather, it is the liturgy of life that Paul is talking of here. Worship for us as Christians is a 24-7 way of life, a way of thinking and acting in this world. Worship is Christian culture. 
It is a way of life defined by the worship of God, oriented to God, quorum Deo, before the face of God, always giving ourselves to him, waking, and whether we're waking or asleep, our lives are oriented to his pleasure, oriented to his glory, worshiping him with everything we have, with our families, our homes, our jobs, our vocations, our talents, our skills, our time, our resources, whatever it is, all of it is drawn up into what it is to be an image bearer of God, which is a worshiper of God. To reflect his glory to the world and to draw and gather up the praises of creation and offer them back in a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to him. This is all of life. Worship is Christian culture. And Paul characterizes the essential nature of this worship as sacrifice. This is a vivid and indeed shocking idea One's whole life, one's whole life, private and public, from conception to death, body and mind, must be laid on the altar like a sacrifice in the temple. We're just not familiar with that kind of a world where that image rings as, as forcefully as it did in that day. We don't actually bring sacrifices. We're not a people, whether Jew or Gentile, who would have brought sacrifices to some kind of a temple of animal sacrifice and saw it killed on an altar and offered and burnt up and offered to God, the God of Israel, or the false gods. We don't know what that image is like. And so let it hit you. As offsetting and off-putting as it is to imagine Abraham offering his son Isaac, we feel like that's just not right. But that's what God is calling us to here. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now the difference between what Paul is saying and and the old form of sacrifice laid on the altar of the temple, the big difference is this. Whereas the sacrifice in the temple is there to be killed, the Christian self-offering is actually all about coming alive with the new resurrection life of God's kingdom and bursting, that's bursting out in unexpected ways in our lives, like forgiveness, healing, reconciliation, peace, gentleness, love, kindness. Those are the evidences of a life that is a living sacrifice to God. It's an evidence of a life that the passions within us that mark this old age are being crucified, that enable the space and the room for the new life of God's coming kingdom, the resurrection life of Jesus, to burst out from us. It's a beautiful sacrifice. A Christian culture, a Christian way of life, then never begins with a set of rules, though it certainly contains them. Rather, it begins and continues in the glad self-offering of one's whole self to God whose mercy has come all the way to meet you in your sin, in your rebellion, in your death, and to give you new life. That's why Paul says all this is based on the mercies of God. So Christian culture is worship. In fact, every culture, though, is worship, isn't it? Because every culture is defined by its worship, what it worships and what that worship produces in it, right? God made us all, whether we recognize his rule in our life or not, he made us all to be worshipers. And so we find something to worship. And this is why Paul calls attention back to Romans chapter 1 with his use of words like bodies and worship here in chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. He wants the church to become the antithesis of the broken humanity that he describes 
in chapter 1. Let me read that for you here briefly. Paul, in, in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, has this to say about broken humanity. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Down in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, since they did not see fit to worship him, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Renewing of your mind. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Now here's the fruit of this worship. A worship bent away from God and bent inward towards ourselves. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die they do not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is what conformity to the world and its way of life that worships the creature rather than the creator produces. Enmity and strife, darkness and death, a degraded body, a darkened mind. Because we've been ripped from the source of life. Our worship of God connects us to the fount of life and light in this world. And when we turn from that and worship anything else, whether it's even a good thing, it's not the ultimate thing. And in doing that and turning away from the source and fount of life and light, our lives become darkened and we begin to die on the vine. We begin to wither. So Paul calls us to a robust culture of worship that's connected to the source of life. And because we're connected to that source of life, we will produce fruit. Fruit not only for this age, but also for the age to come. You see, this is what Paul begins to call us to in more detail, in more specificity in Romans 12 through 15. Because the offering of our bodies to God as a living sacrifice produces genuine love, he says. Just... Just listen to, just listen to just snippets of what this produces in our lives together. When we fall, we present our bodies as living sacrifices. Verse 9 of chapter 12. This is our lectionary passage from next week. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We could go on to chapter 13 where Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And you can go on to read all of those chapters and you see the fruit of the worship of God. The fruit of a life that's presented to God as a living sacrifice. This is indeed what presenting our bodies, our whole selves to God as a living sacrifice produces. Genuine love, light, and life. If we were to go on in chapter 13, it talks, the image of, is of daybreak, that we are people of the daybreak. And New Testament scholar Leander Keck identified this entire section of 12 to 15 in Romans as daybreak ethos, as a daybreak people. We are people of the day, not people of the night. Our lives would be ones that reflect the light of God in this world, and we do that when we, when we submit, when we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And of course, this is why Paul further commands us in verse 2 to not be conformed to this world. As recipients of the mercies of God, we must refuse to let the world around us dictate its own terms and conditions as the basis for our way of life. We must resist being pressed into the mold. Instead, we must figure out how to speak and think and act as is appropriate, not for this present age, the age characterized by rebellion against God, but for the age, the new age of God's kingdom that is already breaking in, the age characterized by the resurrection life and power of Jesus and his spirit. This means that a Christian culture will be a counterculture. But this does not mean that every single aspect of the culture around us is automatically and completely bad. But at the very least, it means that we must be prepared to think through each and every aspect of life to integrate whether or not, to interrogate whether or not it leads to worshiping the creator rather than the creature. As a result, we must be willing to challenge the, those parts of the culture around us and even within us when the present age shouts or perhaps whispers seductively that it would be easier, that it would be easier and better to do things that way, the world's way. While the age to come already began, begun in Jesus insists that belonging to the new creation means that we must live this way instead. We must think through that. The key to all this then is the transforming of our minds, as Paul says there in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul's exhortation here to be transformed uses the passive form of the verb and implies that the process of transformation requires a power outside of ourselves, the Holy Spirit. And we desperately need the Spirit of God to transform our thinking by teaching us to adopt a new way of perceiving everything, a new way of looking at the world of reality itself on the basis not of self-interest, but on the basis of the mercies of God, the grace of God extended to us in his son Jesus, and in the light of the already breaking in new creation kingdom of God. As Paul says elsewhere, 
in 2 Corinthians, we need to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Yet many Christians today never come to terms with this. We hope we will be able to live up to something like a Christian standard of living or morality while thinking the way the rest of the world thinks. It can't be done. Paul's analysis of human rebellion from Romans chapter 1, which I just read, included a fair amount of wrong thinking. Having the mind renewed by the persuasion of the Spirit of God is the vital start of that true human living, which is God's loving will for all his children. And at the center of genuine human living is a mind awakened, a mind alert, determined to understand why human life is to be lived in one way and not another, to understand the ways of God from creation through redemption over against the ways of a world that is in rebellion against him. As a result, we must refuse to drink from shallow wells. We must refuse to drink from shallow wells. A shallow well does not produce the water needed to grow deep roots in Christ. A shallow well may sustain us in a season of ease and comfort, but during a season of suffering and great challenge and cultural pressure, when the heat of the sun is beating down, it will dry up and leave us withered. So much of the evangelical landscape in America drinks from a shallow well, and as a result, their roots are shallow. The shallowness of belief and formation explains in part the significant departure from orthodoxy that is increasing across evangelicalism today. One analysis concerning the rise of the nuns, those who claim no religious affiliation, stated, given the rapid rise and fall of the evangelical crop, we might safely conclude that many of those who joined and helped it spring up so quickly had shallow roots. Overall, Christians were not cultivated with deep roots in the truth God has revealed about himself, his world, human beings, and his plan to make all things new. So our desire and prayer here at Christ Church, our vision is to resist this tendency toward shallowness. We want to be a colony of heaven that is deeply rooted in Christ and planted in place right here in Winston-Salem for God's glory and for the life of our neighbors. That is why in the next season of life at Christ Church, we want to lean in and cultivate more deeply our roots in Christ by building and embodying a robust Christian culture, one that stands as both a contrast and a witness of new life to the world around us. To do this, we must receive and submit ourselves wholly to the grace of God that begins to heal our worldly ways of thinking and the wounds that we have from the result of such thinking and acting in this world. And that's why we must gather here for corporate worship, wherein God heals and nourishes us by his grace through word and sacrament. And this becomes the basis out of which, the seedbed within which, our lives are given over to God as a sacrifice. And whether it's through corporate worship here, in our homes, in our life groups, among Christian friends, we have a role to play in this cultivation of deeper roots. It's not just the grace of God. We're not just passive recipients of it. We have a role to play as well. Our ongoing formation in the faith is one way we cooperate in this transforming process 
of the Spirit, especially by regularly reading and meditating on the Word of God in prayerful dialogue with our risen Lord. We learn what that's like here. We learn what that's like here, but we extend that to our homes as much as we are able to give ourselves over to that. And we commune with our Lord through his word. And such transformation requires that we live by the power of the Spirit who enables us as God's children to set our minds, to fix them on the things of the Spirit of God. Isn't that not Romans 8? And if we give ourselves to this individually and collectively, because Paul's image here is not of individuals by themselves, but as individuals, bodies offered as a single sacrifice. The word sacrifice is singular. Offered as a single sacrifice. It requires that we live, it requires that we give ourselves to this individually and collectively. And if we do that, God will powerfully be at work in us. He will powerfully be at work in us and the new life of Christ will be produced in us. His resurrection life will burst out of us in love and light and life. And that's a promise from God. You can go to the bank with it. That he will produce new life in you when you respond in repentance and faith to his spirit. And we will see ourselves transformed in Christ's image. We will see our children come to know Jesus not only on the written page of his word, but also on our lives, on the page of our lives as people. And we will see others in this city come to know Christ because our lives shine as a light. Even a small light in a very dark world draws people. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.